text, if you just look over there for a minute. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. May the Lord now add his blessing to this word. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, it was quite a number of years ago, more than I can remember, that Monty Python, a a British comedy troupe, put out a movie called Life of Brian. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Probably shouldn't. It was, at the time, quite a controversial movie. I don't think it could possibly be that anymore, but then it was. It was considered extremely blasphemous. It was considered an anti-Christian, very anti-religious movie. Uh, TV shows debated it. Pundits on the the news discussed it. The troupe went on various uh, talk shows in order to defend it. Ministers and priests were brought forth to ask their opinion on this terrible movie, Life of Brian. And you might wonder, why is it such a terrible movie? Well, it tells the story of a, of a child born on Christmas morning, on the same morning of, of the incarnation that Jesus Christ is born. Only he's born in a house over. He's not in the house where Mary and Joseph are. He's in one house over. And the wise men, when they come to bring their gifts, come to the wrong house initially. They come to this baby, uh, and they believe that this is the, the Son of God born in the flesh. Uh, And they ask then the mother, what is his name? And she says, it's Brian. And then they realize they've made a mistake, that this is the wrong house. And they go to the next house where, in fact, Jesus is born. And now this Brian, this life that began by being mistaken for the Messiah, uh, carries on that way. People keep mistaking him for the Messiah. They keep thinking he's the one come to to redeem them from the oppression of of sin and of the Roman Empire and the like. And, And so they put their trust in this Brian. They follow him all over. And they acknowledge him ultimately as their Savior. He dies even on a, in the movie, on a cross. And, 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 and people were very offended, and, and understandably so, by this movie. But one of the things that, that struck me as I listened to some of the debates and discussion about this movie, one of the things that struck me that people missed was that it was, in many respects, a movie true to life. That what this movie depicted, the the misplaced confidence of sinners in someone not the Messiah. Someone who looked like, sounded like, seemed to be, was close to, but wasn't the Messiah. That's a fairly common experience. People do it all the time. We, We sometimes struggle to realize that. I think we struggle to realize that because of the name that we give to our Messiah. His name, of course, is Jesus. But it would become easier, I think, to illustrate this if we changed his name to what it was when his mother and his father gave him that name. When the angel said to him, his name will be Jesus, then the angel said his name will be Joshua. That's how Jesus would have been called. That's who he would, how he would have been called by his mother. She wouldn't have said Jesus. She would have said Joshua. Joshua, come inside. It's time to eat. Joshua, we need to go. We're going to go to the temple or we're going to go home from the temple. Joshua, come along. And if somebody came to you today and you said to them, do you have faith in the Lord? And they said, oh yes, I believe in Joshua. Your next question might be, which one? Which Joshua? Because there are so many Joshuas in this world. We all probably know Joshua's. 
Which Joshua do you believe in? When we use the name Jesus, we know that can only refer to one person. But the truth is, people who say they believe in Jesus, who say they believe in Joshua, may not believe in the same Jesus you do. Just like that movie suggested, people put their trust in those they want to be the Messiah, in a Savior that they fashion and, 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 and form after their own expectation, a Savior that they say, this is the kind of Jesus I want. And they say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Christmas comes, they say, I believe in Jesus. But it's not the Jesus born on, on Christmas morning. It's not the Jesus given by God for salvation for sins. They put their trust in the wrong Jesus. Indeed, sometimes we celebrate the birth of the wrong Messiah. I think that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we come into now the, the consequence of all that's followed in chapters 1, 2, and 3. We've heard about God's good creation. We've seen uh, man's uh, uh, condition uh, uh, that God gave to him, the, the, the garden, the, the, the marriage, the, the everything. We heard the warning about the tree, and then we saw a man in chapter 3 fall into sin, and, and, and the consequence of it, his being expelled from the garden as a result. And that must have been a very hard first night, don't you think? That must have been such a very difficult first night. Created into the garden, living in this idyllic paradise, this perfect place. Now they're in the cold wilderness. Now they're all out on their own by themselves. Just the two of them there. What a change that must have been. What a burden that must have placed upon man and woman's Adam and Eve's hearts. Can you begin to imagine what it would have been like for them to have to sleep that first night in the, in the, in the wilderness, outside of the garden, outside of that home that they'd been blessed with? I think we do actually sometimes experience something of that in this life. We are born into this life and we're born into a life that is generally speaking good a life that is full of many blessings, many, many uh, gifts and graces that the Lord bestows upon us. And when we're young, we, we think life is just that way, that, that life is a, a place where moms and dads love their kids and, and, and brothers and sisters get along and, and we all work together and we worship God. We think that's normal. But life can sometimes press itself upon us in ways that are very hard. The cruel words of someone we thought loved us. That can be a, a shocking moment as we discover that there's a brokenness in this world that we hadn't anticipated. The selfishness of someone who was meant to protect us but instead does us harm. That moment can be a very existentially difficult moment. This isn't what it's supposed to be like. This isn't what life is like. This is cruel. This is harsh. The unexpected loss of one we thought would journey with us to the end of our days. All of a sudden, our world is different. There is a cruelty and a darkness. There is a heaviness. The curse of sin can at times make us catch our breath and make us long for something better. Everyone knows something of this longing. I think that's what makes Christmas such a powerful moment in our culture's zeitgeist in our culture's spirit 
Because Christmas holds out that promise, a, an idyllic moment, a lovely couple with a baby, hope. It's, a, it's the most wonderful time of the year, they sing. Or in the more even passive-aggressive, do they know it's Christmas? Because Christmas is so wonderful. Christmas is a time of peace, and Christmas is a time of family, and Christmas is this time of wholeness, where the brokenness of the world is held at bay for a moment in the romantic Rockwellian pictures of families gathered around their Christmas trees. It's in the advertiser's promise that this present will make life that much better. It's in all of these cultural elements that recognize that there is a hardness to life that we want desperately to see overcome, that everyone in our world wants to see overcome. Even our world longs to be delivered from this pro- the problems of this life, from the heaviness that Adam and Eve experienced that first night outside of the garden. That heaviness produces freedom 55, produces lotteries. That promise if you win, you can do whatever you want, be free from all the trouble of life. In all of our hearts, in all of men's hearts, there exists a longing for restoration and renewal. Sometimes that restoration and renewal is sought by pretending that nothing's wrong. I think that happens around this time of the year as well. Sometimes we pretend. Let's just sit around the table. I know we don't get along the rest of the year. I know that we get angry with each other and we can talk to each other in cruel ways the rest of the year, but on Christmas, let's just sit around the table and And let's pretend. Let's pretend. We do that not just at Christmas, of course. Sometimes a life-altering event comes into our world. Something radically shifts the plates of our existence. And, And we just want things to go back to normal. We just want to pretend like it never happened. Can we just reset? Can we just wake up tomorrow? Maybe we even lay in our beds for a moment and we forget that our loved one has been gone, that our spouse has made that confession, that the doctor has made that announcement. Maybe, maybe life is back to normal and then the reality crushes us again. Normal. Isn't that what we want? We want everything to be normal. That's how we try to deal with the problems of life. We try to pretend. Sometimes we, rest, we seek that restoration through distractions. Sometimes we, we, we want, we want to, to avoid thinking about just how hard life is. We go to work and, and we bury ourselves in our work. We, we just keep going. We, we find a hobby. We, we find some activity that we can do in order to keep our mind from resting on this truth. Maybe, maybe we find ourselves opening just another bottle of beer or, or another bottle of whiskey or, or having another joint or, or in some way trying to, to, to uh, distract our brains from the thoughts that, that so burden us so we can avoid the pain. We sometimes deal with this restoration by promising ourselves something better is coming. We even tell ourselves, you know, if this happens or if that happens, if I get that promotion, if I get this new job in this new town, if I get a new start, then it'll be good. If I can just have a, a fresh start, then I'll be happy. All of which is only to say that man, whoever man is, knows two things in this life, that life is hard and that we need some kind of restoration. We need some kind of deliverance 
some kind of salvation. Even if the the world in which we live doesn't use those terms, that's what everyone's looking for. Everyone's looking for blessing. Everyone's looking for the brokenness of this world to be lifted. Everyone's longing for there to be some joy at Christmas. There's no end to the solutions we offer to the problems of life. But just note that there comes a moment in all of our lives when the, problem, or when the promise of life is replaced by the problems of life. And in those moments, we all know we need something. And if we know it, how much more didn't Adam and Eve know it? How much their hearts must have longed, how much they must have desired for some restoration. They had been at the very height of what life had to offer, and they were now in its depths. Oh, how they longed to be returned. Returned to that place of blessedness with God. And the wonderful thing for them was they'd been given a promise on how that blessedness would return. The Lord knows our greatest need. Knows it far better than we. He knows that our attempts at solving the problems of life, our politicians' attempts at solving the problems of life, our culture's attempts at solving the problems of life, they don't provide any solution. You look at how our society with its cancel culture is trying to solve the problem of racism, solve the problem of sexism. All very good things to want to solve, but they want to solve it by punishing other people, by putting other people down. They use cruelty to rid themselves of cruelty. That's the way the world works. That's the way the solutions of our world come about. They use bad things to solve bad things. But not God. God has a a solution that isn't temporary. It isn't one that solves one problem but causes others. His solution addresses the very root problem that we deal with, that we don't always want to admit we deal with, and He provides what is a radical restoration. He restores it root and branch. He restores life from the very beginning. A new life, a new world, a new way. And He does it by the promise of a son. Enmity, says God to the serpent. Enmity will exist between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. She's going to have children, God's saying there. That's the implication. She's going to have children. And when she has children, that child is going to destroy you. He's going to defeat your power. He's going to lift these people out of the misery of sin. He's going to restore them to the place of blessing. That's what God's saying there in Genesis 3.15. He's not just cursing the serpent. He's promising salvation. Promising salvation through a son born of the woman. And we, we who live today, far more than Adam and Eve could have ever known, they may have known the awful fall from the heights of blessedness to the depths of misery better than we did. But we know better than they the promise of that Son. 
and its full implications and its full wonder and joy. Those few words spoken to the serpent in Genesis 3.15 now define reality and define everything that happens hereafter. They, like us, had the promise of a child to be born. But unlike us, Adam and Eve didn't have Luke 2. They didn't even have the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Days 5 and 6. You remember what those catechism Lord's Days teach. They teach, how can we be delivered from this misery of sin that we have fallen into? How can we be delivered from? Well, there needs to be one who is perfectly righteous, perfectly human, and must be true God. Why must he be true God? Why must he be truly human? Why must he be truly righteous? We know the answer to that. We know that God's justice demands it. Adam and Eve knew that a man was coming who would deliver them. We know, well, we know the glorious theological wonder of who that man is God incarnate God in the flesh born on Christmas morning that that's no ordinary baby but that is the creator take on flesh to redeem his creatures through his death upon the cross we know that he's come to lift his people from the misery of their sin and restore them to the wonder of his faithful love and grace we know We know his name. We know his parents' name. We know his birthday. We know centuries of God's faithfulness. We know millennia of his persistent goodness and grace to an undeserving and wicked people. His endless clarifications to them of who his Messiah would be. We know just how committed God is to the blessing of His people. We know how devoted God is to lifting us out of the brokenness of this fallen world. We know a love and a mercy so deep and so wide you will never find its limits, never find its edges. We know our great and glorious God's love in Jesus Christ. We know At the root of life's sorrows is rebellion against God and the curse of our God against that sin. We know that it's our greed and our selfishness, our thoughtlessness and our carelessness that is the misery of this life. And we know that Jesus has come to deliver us from the power of this sin so that we might enjoy, begin to experience the joy of restoration. We know that life can be good again because of Jesus Christ. We know just how rich is our condition. We know way more than Adam and Eve ever did. Or or we should. We should. I think sometimes there's a general ignorance within the culture about the true meaning of Christmas. When asked why people celebrate Christmas, I wonder how many of our neighbors, our co-workers, the average man on the street, I wonder how many of them would know the real reason for why we celebrate Christmas. And even if they did manage to say a thing or two about Jesus, what explanation would they give for commemorating His birth? 
Who is that Jesus born on Christmas morning? Why is that Jesus so important that everybody should stop and celebrate His birthday? They know His name, but do they know who He is? Do they truly know this Savior? I don't think that many in our culture do. But you say, we do. We're the church. We do. We know about the Messiah. And that's certainly true. We know the theological necessity of the incarnate Son of God. And and that shouldn't be dismissed. That shouldn't be diminished. That's a wonderful thing that even our youngest children can know the name of Jesus and even know something about why Jesus had to come. But do we know it as more than just a doctrinal truth? That's a vital question. Do we know it as a profoundly glorious, redemptive truth that gives to us a joy the brokenness of this earth can never take from us? Do we know truly that our own failings and sins are met by the wonder of the child born on Christmas morning? Do we know in our sorrow, in our grief, when the brokenness of this world overwhelms us, that our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to that baby born on Christmas? Do we know just how rich is our condition in Jesus Christ? Ask yourself this question. What is the best part of Christmas? Is it the stuff? Family coming together, presents, all good things in themselves, undoubtedly. But what do you look forward most on Christmas Day? Being able to open your presents or come to church to celebrate the one born on that morning? My guess is we all will admit, if we're honest, That it's the stuff we look forward to. And I understand why. We live in a stuff-oriented culture. Stuff is the measure of success. It's the guarantee of future blessing. It's what makes us happy. Advertisers know this. Their ads are full of happiness and contentment and fulfillment. Buy their stuff and your life will be better. Maybe that's what Christmas seems like to people too. The presents under the tree will make us happy, will make us think life is okay. We can't wait to go to school and tell our friends what we got for Christmas. Because Christmas, or the stuff of Christmas, makes us happy. And there's a place for that. Of course there is. We certainly don't want to diminish our physical needs. And, and there's a lovely, it's a lovely way to celebrate what God's gift, the gift of grace in Jesus Christ. A lovely way to give each other gifts and to say, this is a token. This is a, a little bit of what happened today. I want you to know the joy that I have because I have been given the greatest gift of all. It's lovely to give gifts on Christmas. Of course it is. The danger is that our focus gets a little too earthly and not sufficiently he- Heavenly. That we begin to think that our joy is more immediate, more tangible, more in the moment than it is eternal in the heavens and in the future. I think we should at least admit that it's possible our focus can get shifted. That even though the gospel is clearly announced to us day by day, sometimes we, get put, our, we put our trust in the wrong thing. That we celebrate the wrong birth or the wrong person or the wrong celebration or the wrong gift. That we forget that the greatest gift of all is Jesus. Sometimes we, we put our trust in the wrong person, in the wrong thing. That's what Eve did. 
Cain's name suggests that Eve believed the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3.15 was being experienced by her and Adam. Now, there's a lot of comment you ought to know on what Eve meant when she spoke as Moses records her speaking. Literally, in the original language, she just says, I have gotten a man, the Lord, which opens up an enormous number of possible explanations, which possible explanations tend to fall into two categories, a positive one and a negative one. The positive one, John Calvin, by the way, takes this position. In the positive explanation, Eve is responding to the promise of God made in Genesis 3.15 and seeing in her son the evidence that God's keeping his promise. That this child, though not the Messiah, was in fact a reminder that the Messiah was coming. And indeed, seeing in this blessing God's continued faithfulness, she rejoices. Indeed, as we all should rejoice. Because that's how we should all approach the blessings of life. Even the children born into our homes ought to be for us a source of great encouragement. The food we eat, the clothes we wear, the houses we enjoy, the sun that shines. It's all a reminder that God is faithful to His covenant, to His promises, to His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. There's no other reason for the sun to shine. There's no other reason for you to have a meal today. There's no other reason for you to exist except that God has worked redemption in Jesus Christ. So all of our blessings are a sign of God's faithfulness in Jesus Christ. And that's how some understand Eve to be speaking here. Others, like Martin Luther, see something far more negative. That Eve here is in fact running a little too far ahead of the Lord. Either by taking too much credit to herself for the birth of Cain. I have done something, she says. Or by elevating Cain to a status that did not belong to him. I have gotten a man. A man? From the help, with the help of the Lord? It suggests that Eve does not see her son as the evidence of God's redeeming work within her life, but in fact as the substance of the redeeming work in her life. Or if you will, that Eve can say when she holds Cain in her arms, Now I have what I want. Now I have the restoration. Now I have the renewal. Now I have the redemption. For I have gotten a man from the Lord. And if that's the case, as I'm suggesting it is, then Eve would not be alone in this. Because I think we all do this. It's, all within, our, it's within all of our fallen natures to elevate the blessings of God to a status they should never enjoy. It's called idolatry. And when we idolize something, we see it as the answer to our problems, as the source of our blessing in this life, as the good stuff of life. And while we might think idolatry is worshiping some little carven images in the past, idolatry is, in fact, just about anything. Christmas is an ex- excellent example of this because people invest in those presents under the tree such hope and anticipation as though that moment, as though this season, as though these Rockwellian pictures, portraits of families around the table are the expression, evidence, the joy of life. That if we can just have that peaceable, lovely dinner, then I'll be happy. 
Maybe it's not the presence. Maybe it's the family. Maybe it's not the family. Maybe it's the eggnog. Maybe it's the turkey. Maybe it's the alcohol. We look for happiness in all sorts of things, hoping that we can enjoy contentment, that we can have that emptiness in our being filled by the experience of a good meal, of a, a, good, exp- a good time with family, of a good present given to us. That void of discouragement or emptiness that fills our hearts, we try to stuff it full of the things of this life. And doing that, we idolize just about anything. We look for meaning and purpose and identity in our marital status, in our financial situation, in our sexuality, in our human nature. This is who we are, and this is no end of our problem. Cain, as you'll note, proved a very, very poor vessel of happiness for Eve. I think that's why. She does much better when Seth is born in verse 25. Because when Seth is born, there's none of this. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now God has appointed for me another. God has done something, says Eve. God has done something. God has done what only God can do. Because now I realize, says Eve, that it's only God who can deliver me. I cannot do it anymore. The I is gone. The God who is remains. And Eve had to come to learn that because she discovered leaning on Cain as her joy in life resulted in a lot of pain for her. And this is not an uncommon experience. We think that the things of this life will make us happy, but they don't. We think that the relationships of this life will fulfill our heart's desire, and they don't. We think that our plans for the future will come to pass, and they don't. We think that our expectations are reasonable, and they're not. And then we realize the emptiness of the tangible, of the immediate. The right now blessings that our hearts crave in the end offer no hope. And it's in that moment of grief and sorrow that our hearts discover to rest in the Lord is to rest in security and in comfort and in joy. Waiting for the Lord to be sure is hard. We instinctively want immediate happiness. We want normal. We want our problem solved now. We sometimes find ourselves struggling with how long we must wait for the fullness of the Lord's blessing. But the truth is to wait upon the Lord is to be the wisest of all men. Because our temporary blessings inevitably disappoint. But the Lord never does. Christmas is the proof of this. Even as we are now waiting the fullest expression of this faithfulness, the return of Jesus Christ, we are waiting for Jesus to come and make our lives full again, full in the fullest possible sense of the word. And as we wait, we may struggle, we may sorrow, we may think, Lord, why must I endure this pain? Why must I have to suffer this brokenness? Eve was unwilling to wait for the Lord to work. She put her trust in the immediate and it disappointed. We, when we do the same thing, we will discover the same thing. So let us learn the lesson of Genesis 4 verse 1. Let us learn the lesson of Christmas morning and wait upon the Lord. Eve had to wait for the right son to be born. We don't. 
But we do have to wait for the sun to return. And though that waiting can sometimes seem too much, in a world full of grief and sorrow, in a world that promises immediate solutions through various things like drugs and and, and sexual activity and, and whatever else that this world wants to offer, And while it can be for us hard to wait as we go down paths that are very difficult, filled with thorns and thistles, and sorrow dogs us at every step, yet those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The Lord is faithful. Eve put her trust in the wrong baby. We can put our trust in the wrong baby, in the wrong Messiah. We can think that salvation comes from a source other than Jesus. Let us hear the lesson of Genesis 4 verse 1 and turn our hearts again to that baby born on Christmas morning and say, I will wait for this Lord. He who loves me more deeply than I'll ever know, who has redeemed me more perfectly than I can ever imagine, He will bless me in whatever the circumstance of life I'm in. I will rest in this sovereign grace. We're going to sing of that by using number 290 